What is up, everyone? Welcome into episode 76 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from MikesLessons.com, and my co-host, who will be joining me shortly, is Mr. Mike Dawson, managing editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. After Mike and I get all caught up, we'll talk about ergonomics. How can you be comfortable and efficient on the drum set without damaging yourself long-term? Our featured artist this time is Mr. Blair Sinta. In our gear review section, we'll be checking out the Peisty Signature Ride Symbols. We'll get to a bunch of your listener questions, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. Man, it's Tuesday. Who does a podcast on a Tuesday to get ready for Friday? It's not Tuesday, it's Friday. <laughs> actually, for a second, I was like, "Wait, is it not Tuesday?" <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't actually know the days of the week. I know the names of them. I just don't know which one we're in ever. Uh, how are you, bud? Well, we're always Friday. Always Friday. For it's, them, every day it's Friday. But we've never recorded this on a Friday ever, right? No, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. I, I know what kind of uh, temporal time distortion field you're living in. I it's got Friday. You. We're on day three of Nam. Oh man, so much good gear. So much good gear. So much to talk about. I really like a lot of the drums. Um, I really like all the solos. That's what I really like. Yeah, <laughs> I love the people auditioning for their endorsement at the Nam booth. <laughs> Oh, oh, episode man. 76 it is actually tuesday but you're hearing this on friday i don't know what the date is but you know what does it matter <laughs> what does it matter welcome what in. it's in january uh <laughs> we're doing this early because you and the team are heading out to nam so do you guys fly out tomorrow we flew out two days ago yeah <laughs> <laughs> good all right i'll stay i'll stay in your time uh so you guys flew out on wednesday <laughs> how was it rough flight Tough guy. <laughs> yeah, this could be this could be kind of scary. I don't want to talk about the future. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Okay. Episode seventy six. Right. Uh, you know, thank everyone who did go to iTunes and write reviews. We got our first one star review. That was awesome. Amazing. I loved it, yeah, and I didn't understand. <laughs> I didn't quite understand what he said. Was that in reference to something we had said in the past? I was trying to think about it. It was something about traditional grip and just and if he plays underhand, let him play underhand. You're ruining drumming. I, I hate your face. Yeah, I'm not quite <laughs> it was awesome. sure, but it was pretty cool. I'm glad we got at least one hater out there. Yeah, it was good, man. I, I mean, to sit through probably 40 or 50 episodes and be like this thing sucks let me listen to episode 52 for an hour that's pretty epic i dig it i'm in oh. uh, no, i do thank everyone for the support i know we were kind of being a little you know a little mean-spirited last week but you know we appreciate every one of them it, it absolutely i read them all once a week i check the stats and i look at the reviews and it's it's great yeah. to just see that everyone's getting something out of it you know it's us just kind of geeking out like we always do anyway so yeah here we are, another another one coming, another um, one coming. So the drum off happened this weekend. Mm. Uh, well, last weekend. Um, <laughs> it is Friday. It happened the previous Saturday. Sure. I didn't. I haven't checked out any of the clips yet. Have you? I don't even know. I honestly no. Um, nothing against. It. I've judged it in the past. I've judged the finals in the past. Um, I will say this: the one or the yeah. I guess I judged the finals two years ago, and I will say that it was incredibly well run um i thought mm-hmm. it's quite a production that they put on um so kudos to them for doing that um but yeah i mean I, it's i think i'm trying to think of the last gc drum off winner that really made an impact on the drum drum world who would you say that you can remember as a winner that is currently kind of in the game well didn't um, jp win jp i i think to me it would either be JP is like currently in the game, doing clinics, doing clinic tours, doing drum camps. Yeah. Um, 
I, and then I would say Juan Mendoza, Mendoza, very active on social media, but he doesn't do a lot of camps or touring and stuff mm-hmm. as a soloist. But I don't think he wants to. I think he's just a natural-born educator. He teaches at a school, so he doesn't have nice. that freedom. Um, but I think you know it's it's not what it used to be as far as launching people into, oh, now you don't have to work. You just have drum stardom. Um, <laughs> well, that I was think, an era when there was there was money, marketing money to put guys on clinic tours and all that stuff, right. which is pretty much gone. Yeah. Uh, well, the other thing, too, is I think the artists themselves realized, well, when I win this, everywhere I go, people just want me to play a drum solo. Most of the guys that win this aren't like soloists. They, yeah. they just are really good drummers, but they want to have a career drumming. And, you know, JP and I got to hang out right after his drum off win for the first time. The first time we met was shortly after his drum off win, which was at Minel Fest the, that year. Mm-hmm. And I said, man, if you want to do this, this drumming thing, you need to distance yourself as much from that win as you can. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck doing drum solos at everybody's base. Every time you sit down on a kit, you're going to do a solo. So he's put in the work to be in the studio as much as possible, to be teaching online as much as possible. And he happens to be a fantastic drum set soloist. But I don't think a ton of people see him as the guy that won the drum off. Yeah, I'm um, looking at the, the list. Tony Royster won it in 1995. Yep. <clears throat> Was that the first year? Maybe. It might be. And then Cora Coleman won. In 2002. Okay. No, this is so, just like a highlights on their website. Okay. Eric Moore won in 2003. I mean, everyone, I mean, everyone's of note, but yeah, it, it seemed like it was like hot and heavy the first couple of years. Uh, but, you know, it's, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about the whole thing. I think it's cool. Whatever, it, whatever inspires people to practice more and, that's, you know, that's come together and, and share, as long as it doesn't become like, an obsession to where you do nothing else but practice three minute drum solos for you know twelve right. months in a row. Yeah, well, and I think also as long as it's not what makes you feel proud about yourself or depressed about yourself. I mean, it's yeah. it's a contest, and it's judged by people that depending on what level you're at, those people might not even be able to handle the solo that's happening. You know, they might just be the local drummers that have big names, but those drummers aren't soloists themselves. You know, I know on my local level, I've seen the Sacramento one. And a lot of times the judges are guys that are like pocket players and they're sitting there judging a drum solo contest, which is weird because yeah. how do they know how to judge it properly? So I think what you said, practice, that's my love for the drum off. The mm-hmm. the amount of practice that you will put in when you're nervous is just irreplaceable. And so I, I have no qualms with it. But at the same time, there is just like you, I'm a little conflicted as far as judging art. Like, yeah. The I mean, Beatles win best band ever. Like, are you sure? Like, I think that's kind of open for debate. <laughs> well, it's, so. it's like one of those things where I think of my favorite drummers. Would they win the drum off? Probably not. <laughs> no, no. I, mean, I just Could don't, you imagine? I just, you know, it's. it's I it's would love totally to different. see that contest. So, okay, I'm going to throw in just three names, and you throw in three others. Okay. So, the, and these have to be from your personal favorite past, not who you think would win drum off. So, I'm going to go with Phil Collins. Okay. Mike Borden from Faith No More, and oh, Manu Kache. Wait a minute. i got to write this down. Phil Collins, uh-huh. Mike Borden. Versus, yeah. In the- <laughs> Manu. <laughs> now, are they playing on their own kits, or are they doing the drum-off thing? You no, full drum-off. Like, you just get, you get up there on that five-piece Tama, whatever. <laughs> okay, those are your three. So I'm going to go early, you know, early inspiration. So Alex Van Halen. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, Marky Ramone, <laughs> and you got to put in Will Will Calhoun. Uh, you know, I was, I was but he might go, win the damn thing. <laughs> well, I want to go like even earlier when I was really okay. kind of just 
getting into it. I would be um, Larry Mullen Jr. Nice from you too. Okay. Yeah. So okay, there we so, go. We've got Phil Collins versus Mike Borden versus Manu Caché versus Alex Van Halen versus Marky Ramone versus Larry <laughs> Mullen Jr. <laughs> I think it's a I think it's a dead tie for nope. You know, None I think of, I think I would have you to think, give it honestly? to Marky Ramone because he's used to playing two minute songs. He would just blaze through a song and be like that. I would say probably Marky Ramone or or Alex Van Halen because he can put on a show. Yeah, Alex would win. I think. Yeah. Because he can put on a show, but but he'd have to be on that on that kit that they give you. And right, when he when right. he came up there, you know, with his pedal, I'd be like, "Sorry, you can't swap out the pedal. You've <laughs> got to play it as it lies. Play it off of Bigfoot's fat foot. <laughs> we don't have rototoms. We don't have a bass drum beer cooler for you. No, <laughs> you just got to play it as it lies. Oh goodness. Well, that is a good man. I, you know, actually, I would kind of like to see that. I mean, be great. The worst would be if Mike Borden was first to go because the kit would be broken. Destroyed, yeah. They'd be like, <laughs> how are the hoops broke? It's like, oh, sorry, Faith No More's drummer got up here and threw down. Um, I and, think but I he'd be mad because he's like, what the hell is this little Tom? It's like, oh, Mike, that's called a 10. He's like, what? <laughs> I've never even seen – is this like some African-Brazilian thing? It's like, no, people use those because oh, I think man. his first Tom is a 14. <clears throat> so, yeah. yeah. I, I, my money would be that Alex would bring some sort of show that would be awesome. Yeah. But, you know, Phil, too, he's a showman. I yeah. think Manu would be a little too artsy to win. Marky would just, he, I mean, what's he going to do? He's going to play rock and roll high school. and Right. I mean, I would give him the win for that. But. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Phil would, would give you the most musical, melodic solo that just seemed like you're at a concert. It's mm. just, you know, be doom, da, 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 doom, da, 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 and just have all these little Tom melodies going on. Um, but as far as what is judged and what is important in the drama, the best thing would be watching those guys try to use that damn Roland pad. Yeah, which I don't <laughs> think is required anymore. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing to get out of that contest. It yeah. always drove me nuts to watch like these great drummers be like, oh, yeah, I got to hit this every 11 seconds. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is is the not be part of the competition kit this year, it says. So, cool. Yeah, they didn't have to do it. Amazing device just drove me nuts as part of that contest. Well, yeah, I haven't seen any of the clips, but I, I will definitely watch them. Um, you know, usually I just try – I have to find a place that has the clips, maybe on Guitar Center's website, but I have to find a place that has the clips without comments because I can't handle the comments. You know, these people put yeah. so much into this, and then everyone just rips them up from their couch. Then I go visit their page, and they, you know – they just play video games. So I'm like, yeah. well, you know, it'd be different if the comments were from Steve Gadd, Steve Smith, Steve Jordan, and anyone named Steve, but they're not. So, all right, buddy. Well, let's get into it. Let's talk a little bit about ergonomics. So ergonomics, this is the actual definition of the word ergonomics, the study of people's efficiency in their working environment. So drumming's, drumming obviously has its own ergonomics. How can we sit at the instrument and play it as efficiently as possible, especially without damaging ourselves? I think that there could be some shortcuts to ergonomics that you could take that might in the long term damage you physically. So I think we're Mm -hmm. trying to find that balance of how can I get the most out of my instrument while being able to play it for 40 or 50 years? Yeah, And, and actually be able to be an entertainer at the same time. That's another part of it. Yeah, depending on on what you're doing. Um, <clears throat> yep. if, if you're entertaining in the studio, you probably have your focus in the wrong place. Right. But uh, <laughs> if you're if you're only focused on the click live, then you've probably got your focus in the wrong place. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. so now one of the things that you wrote down for this topic was trends. Do you think ergonomics has trends, or do you notice trends? 
Um, well, Maybe yeah, with the I mean, way people sit, the way people hold their sticks. I mean, obviously, traditional versus matched would be one. Yeah, I think it's just like everything else, like politics and business. It just goes in this big cycle where everything kind of gets in really close and everyone's really trying to be efficient. And then all of a sudden, things get really spread out and high and spaced out. And mm. I think we're kind of in a – I'm not quite sure what we're in right now. Maybe a, a transition phase. I mean, people are doing really extreme stuff with their symbol angles that I really can't comprehend why they're angling their stuff away from them so away much. Away from them. So that would be Chris Coleman. Um, Annika does it sometimes. Yeah, Chris Dave. I mean, a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember Keith Carlock kind of threw everyone for a loop when he started angling his yeah. drums away from them. But his symbols were still set up in a, a more traditional way. Right. But, and then yep. Daru Jones would be like the extreme example of the drums angled away. Right, yeah. Right. But it works for um, them. And, and uh, Garrett Goodwin yeah. with Carrie Underwood, I think his kid, it looks so strange, but he says it's completely comfortable. But that's that's where I wanted to dig in. Like comfortable now, comfortable 20 years from now is, mm-hmm. is where I'm finding the rub. And maybe it's just because I'm getting older, but I'm starting to find that, that what I think is a – efficient comfortable setup i'm getting some neck pain i'm getting some shoulder really? pain i'm not quite sure what i think part of it for me is being a taller drummer and wanting to feel like i can get inside the kit so i slouch more okay so my throne has to be higher therefore i'm up above the drums but then i don't want to feel like i'm like floating above the kit right so I and tend playing to, down on the instrument yeah so i tend to kind of bring my shoulders and neck right. down and I'm starting to just feel a little bit weird, and wherever the right symbol it crashes placed, it, you know, because I do a lot of crash riding, and that okay. just seems like it's just opening up my shoulder a little bit too far. Yep. To where now I'm starting to feel a little bit of long term, you know, effects wow. from it. So I think that's, I think part of it's just my own posture, but that also plays into how the kit is set up. So I'm I'm in a, a total like rebuild stage. I'm, I think I need to get away from everything I ever thought about the way I'm setting up my kit. Wow. I'm not sure where to go. I think I want to go maybe back to the higher, more vertical symbols, maybe. Okay. Like the ride symbol a little bit higher. Yep. And just, and tilted towards you. Yeah. Because there's, I mean, that's been, that setup's been used forever. I mean, there's, you know, um, currently Kenny Washington might be the most extreme, but Al Foster did that where they're almost like completely vertical and really close to them. Which seems like I, it would be really awkward, but when you sit at their kid, it's just like right there. Yeah, you don't. I remember uh, seeing Roy Haynes on the Modern Drummer Festival. Same thing. I was like, "Wow, that thing is like." I mean, you can't if you put Jello on it, it's going to slide right down. Mm-hmm. You, you can you can put cup of noodles on my symbol, and it'll it'll be all good all day. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think paying attention to your own body is the key to all of this. And understanding that there is a right way to set up, but that right way is also based off of your body. So um, one thing that I think is really important and not enough enough drummers do is I think playing other people's drum sets are really important because you just show up and you see how they've set up. And obviously for the first five or ten minutes, it's going to be a little awkward. But then maybe by the end, you're like, wow, this is really comfortable where you have this or something like like. If somebody plays their ride all the time, I mean, just constantly they're in that open position to play their ride. Once they sit down at a jazz drummer's kit and play the ride over their rack tom, because there's usually two rides on the kit, they're like, Mm -hmm. God, I wouldn't have to open up my whole body. I could just stay kind of face to my left a little bit and play really close in. Uh, And I always enjoy that. And it's always a question of am I willing to give up my crash right there so that I can 
play on the ride almost full time, um, and I never quite make it to that point. That's why I don't have two rides. But I think there's a, a lot of things to be said. Obviously, one thing you can do is start from scratch. You know, you get that yeah. kick. You know, the kick is where you want it because it doesn't have any options. Yeah. I mean, unless you're going to do something awkward and turn it sideways. But you start with the kick, and then I think you put the snare in between your legs, and then wherever that feels comfortable to you kind of dictates where that hi-hat pedal is going to go. Yeah. And as long as that's not overlapping the snare too much or too much gap, you should be fine. And then slowly bringing things in from that. But, I mean, even getting to the point that you are absolutely in love with kick snare hats as your setup is a really good place to start for your own comfort. I think uh, something you mentioned, too, that's really important is seat height. and yeah. Yeah. Or seat height. Making sure that you're it, – it, it, to me, that's really dependent on are you a heel-up player, a heel-down player? Are you, just like mm-hmm. you said, having to hunch over to be mm-hmm. in the drum set? Um, I always want to have good posture because I know it's something that will affect me for the rest of my life. So yeah, um, that stuff's really important. Now, yeah. do you let me see, let me ask you this: How tall are you, by the way? Are you six two? Six two. So it's six just two. a just above average enough to where if I sit at most people's kits, I feel like my knees are, are buckled a little bit too much. Or if I if I sit with the the throne where where I know I want it to be, which is with the legs just slightly above parallel. I yep. mean, it's it, it puts the kit so low, like the floor tom has to be almost completely extended on the legs. Yeah. So I feel like I'm really having to like reach down to play the drums, and I, I also I just feel like I want to be in the sound. I don't want to be above the sound. So it yeah. is. No, I can see that. I feel like maybe everything just needs to come up. The rack tom needs to get awkwardly high. I'm not sure. Do you find any difference in comfort when you're playing on your 22, which then just kind of by nature raises everything up a little bit? No, or I you, don't. Because my don't, posture definitely changed when I switched to a 2012-14. I even got comments on social media where people seeing my side camera said, hey, man, um, try not to hunch over so much. You're going to kind of hurt yourself. I'm like, hunch over? I'm like Mr. Straight Posture Guy. And then I watched and. Um, you know, with the 20, because the relationship between my kick drum and my rack tom and my floor tom and my snare is always kind of the same. So when that bass drum came down two inches in diameter, pretty much my whole drum set dropped two inches. Mm-hmm. Um, if I li- leave my rack tom where it was for my 22, it just looks weird to me. There's so much space between that's, my rack tom and my bass drum. Yeah, that's where it's like getting over the thing. Like knowing that I have to crash ride so much, logic would say, we'll put that crash over the center of the kit. Right, but You're I just right there I just you. hate the way that looks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I don't want it there. I, I want it on the right, but then I'm having to torque, uh, you know, my shoulder in a strange way. I seriously have to take out that one line you just said because you kind of did it with a little whine. It's like I don't want it there. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> I just want that to be my ringtone. My ringtone I mean, every time I, you call me. I only use two crashes, so it just the symmetry would just drive me crazy to have one yeah. on the left and then one over the center and then the big gap on the right side of the kit. I, I'm not gonna lie. There is definitely a part of me in the past and probably still that will set up a drum set for looks and then allow my body to figure it out yeah right i mean that's how i roll oh that looks like 90 percent of the time because i don't really i don't care enough you know it's like i can i can play whatever sometimes i have the the right side crash super low more of like a low ride and like that's cool because i can kind of come down on it in a cool way but i'm not picky but I think not being picky has caused me to play with the seat too low, and then my lower back starts hurting, and playing with the yeah. crashes too spread out. Now my shoulders are starting to hurt. It's just this aging thing, man. Man, <laughs> ain't nobody got time for it. 16, it didn't matter. I could do anything. <laughs> now you're taking shots of apple cider vinegar, or just trying to keep. <laughs> That's true. I do every day. <laughs> so do I. That stuff's rough. I just got into it. 
I, I did I not put it know in water with a, there you go I did not know about lemon. diluting it yeah. so I hammered a full shot of it and it just burned for about an hour and I was like <laughs> I don't think this is right it's yeah, a lot yeah. of acidic nature my kitchen uh, just yeah. smells like Easter eggs all day long <laughs> <laughs> so funny yeah man uh I got that stuff going, but I'm with you. I I think paying attention to your body is the key to a lot of this stuff, and you just have to be willing to give up some cool factor. It's so funny. I I know that my drum set would be a little bit more comfortable for me if I raised everything up two inches from the bass drum, Mm -hmm. but I won't, unless it's like something really bad. Luckily, I've never really had any problems physically, and I've been playing drums since I was five, so it's 35 years of drumming every day of my life, and just like you, I don't really ever warm up because I never cool down i play yeah. drums every day right. um and a lot throughout the day but i think i think there's something to be said you know one thing that jp mentioned at the last camp was something i'd never really thought of somebody asked him how do you how high do you sit jp is pretty tall too he's about six two six three yeah he's, um, he's taller than me yeah and and uh he said well i make sure that when i raise my leg to play the bass drum it's completely parallel so he instead of thinking about how he is at a resting position, he's thinking how he is when he actually pulls his leg up to play. Oh, okay. um, and so so we probably all sit about exactly the same. My leg is slightly angled down, a little bit less than parallel. But then I, I checked today because I knew this topic was coming up. And sure enough, when I raised my leg up to play heel up, when I was going ready to make a stroke, it came to exactly parallel. So yeah. So um, I think well then how do you how do you place the rest of the kit though? That's like that I can. Yeah. I can come to grips with and right. I don't play enough toms to really be super concerned with that. Sometimes they're flatter, sometimes they're more angled, but in right. general there's a pretty even transition from the snare to the rack tom. But the snare drum is another point of contention. Yeah. It's like I, if I get it up to where I think it should be, I feel like I might be lifting my shoulder in order to reach it. But if yeah, I get my, it down where it, where everyone else plays it, I feel like I'm punching between my legs. Now, <laughs> I play a 14 by 5.5, so this actually, the, the depth of the snare matters, but the bottom of my snare is always at the exact top of my throne. Always. Um, oh, right. You mentioned that before. Yeah. And, and I know that for a fact because now I don't have the uh, hydraulic throne, so I know where it is is where it stays. <laughs> um, so that's where that starts. And then my floor tom is always exactly what my snare is. If I put a stick on the rim of my snare crossing over to the floor tom, the stick won't roll towards me. It won't roll away from me. There's no angle. Um, and my my thought on that is I want to be able to play the snare drum in front of me like normal and then only swivel my hips without moving my arms whatsoever and my sticks would still be in the middle of the head of the floor tom. Mm-hmm. So if I just do this and move my hands, I don't have to... <laughs> I just realized we're audio only. And I'm sure. <laughs> if I just do this, Mike, can, a, can everybody great, see it? I got a great visual. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so that's that's how that starts for me. Like it, It's kick, snare, and floor tom. Those are actually the first things I set up. Mm-hmm. And then I bring in the hi-hat. And the hi-hat is based off of uh, Bill Billy Ward. Is it Billy Ward or Bill Ward? The one that did the... Billy Ward. Billy Ward. Um, it's based off of his big-time video. Or maybe it might have even been when he did his Modern Drummer uh festival thing but i remember him saying he just kind of puts his feet on the ground how he sits and then he puts pedals underneath them so once my foot is on the bass drum pedal then wherever my left foot naturally goes with the snare in between my legs that's where my hi-hat goes and so and the rack tom where how do you figure that? rack tom is directly in front of the snare drum so that and um it's just so i can move straight up and down so i would say it's parallel to the snare drum um if you're going upwards and then the ride symbol fills in the gap between the rack tom and the floor tom. So there's no overlap 
of the rack tom rim. Like my ride symbol is maybe at a half inch out from my rack tom rim. Oh, that's pretty close. Yeah. Um, so if I wanted to put a cowbell in there, it ain't going to fit. Um, <laughs> it's right there. Um, so, yeah, so that's where that goes. And I'd say it's probably coming out about three to four inches over my floor tom, casting a little shadow there. And then uh, the crash symbol is actually attached to my rack tom stand, so I don't really have any option. It is where it is, and I yeah. don't boom out or anything. Um, yeah, and then I put my stacker where you were talking about putting your right crash kind of low. It's it's right over my floor tom, maybe five inches above my floor tom. It's really low. Yeah, so. your kit's pretty compact. Yeah, I, I should probably try that. But it, you know, on the on the flip side, I I did a festival date. You know, I guess it was last summer, and I was sharing a kit with a with a guy, and he had the kit. Really spread out to where the the ride symbol was on a straight stand, so it okay. couldn't it couldn't come couldn't over the there. bass drum, and sure. it was maybe like three inches pushed away from the from the shell. It wasn't even up against the shell. It was pretty, you know, like diagonal out from the shell, probably three inches. And then he put his right side crash like way to hell out in in right field. Yeah, and it actually felt really felt comfortable. But I don't think that that's going to be good in the long term. It felt yeah. nice to be able to just extend my freaking long arms. I was going to say, yeah, your <laughs> arms are longer than mine, so my kit probably wouldn't fit. That's why when people say, how should I do this? I'm like, I, I, dude, you're 6'9". I, I can't tell you what to do. Like, yeah. um, But I, the one thing I wonder, too, is I've been doing video content as my primary job for almost 10 years now. I wonder how much of my setup was because something was in the way of a camera angle and I – got rid of it and uh, i lowered yeah. it i mean my symbols are crazy low yeah good point but that's where my camera goes and and you can always <clears> see everything i'm playing through my camera angles so i wonder how much camera angles have dictated my own personal ergonomics so that's a good point because i had uh, I, in the, the natal video when we first posted it one of the first comments was how far you know some guy was like man your floor time is way out there but it's not. It's where I want it to be. Right. It's, but it's a 14, and it's an 18-inch base drum. So, yeah, there's a maybe an 8-inch right. gap between the two. But it made me think, like, I don't think so. I mean, it doesn't look great on camera. But right. when I play the drum, it's, like, right there. It's right where it should be, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> it's, a, it's something we should definitely, now that we've talked about it, we should mess around with our own personal ergonomics. Uh, hopefully get some, some great emails from you guys, uh, mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. And it's something that it's something I think that's of always ever evolving. Um, and I would assume as you get older, you do want to get more ergonomic on the kit. Go ahead. This this topic was uh, inspired by a question by Brett. So he had he wanted to know if our setups were evolving and how they changed. So that kind of brought it on for me. But uh, well, definitely, I'm, I'm definitely in a phase where I'm like, all right, throw it all out, start all over. Let's see what happens. Yeah. And, you know, I think that would surprise a lot of young drummers that people that have been playing as long as us do that. But that's a pretty regular occurrence. It's, you know, it's yeah. a cleanse. Got to do a cleanse. All right. Well, let's get into our featured artist. Our featured artist this time is Mr. Blair Sinta. And if you go to his website, you will find out that uh, you probably own a few of his albums or at yeah. least something he's recorded on. This dude has played with everybody from Alanis Morissette, Chris Cornell, Stevie Nicks, uh, it says Glenn Ballard, and I'm wondering like, if Glenn actually does his own musical stuff. Or, I mean, I know Glenn was the producer for Alanis Morissette and for Aerosmith, but, um, and worked with Dave Stewart, Melissa Etheridge, Better Than Ezra, Josh Groban, uh, Modest Yahoo. So he's definitely been in the mix as yeah. a session cat. And now, how, how long has Blair been on your guys' radar? Is he somebody that's just always been around, or is, did somebody point this out to you guys and you're like, oh my gosh, this guy's the real deal? 
Uh, I guess that was probably probably my suggestion. Um, he might have reached out at some point in the past year, but <clears throat> I remember him from you know before I was working here. He when he took oh, over wow. the, the gig with the last more set. Yeah, I think he came in maybe after. Um, be after Gary. After Gary, and it was so, like yeah. a. It was a. The band was really high energy at the time. And oh I, my gosh, it was really inspiring. Yeah. It was because it went from the Taylor Hawkins era, which was really cool, um, and then the Gary era was a little bit more produced and and more, you know, controlled. But then when I saw Blair, it was like they were rocking out again. Yep, and he played with a lot of energy and a lot of confidence, but still really tasteful. That that mix of of having a great yeah. touch, but then just being able to just let go when yeah, you're performing. I think- I'm trying to think the first time I saw him, I think, was him playing with Alanis. Uh, I don't remember where they were. You know, I'm sure knowing her, she does like two gigs a year, one in Egypt and one (laughs) on top of the Eiffel Tower. Uh, But it was some epic gig, and he was playing Uninvited from the City of Angels soundtrack. Oh, yeah. And that's a a really powerful song. And somehow he just found that balance where it was like the power was there of – that's a a different sounding song. Power was there, but there was still like – it was almost busy for what you would think, but it mm-hmm. didn't sound busy at all. But it was kind of one of those things where you could see him doing stuff, but you only heard the cool notes. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, man, that's that's awesome. I know he's got a really expensive mic, so he's the one controlling the dynamics there yeah, right, and exactly. letting the, the right things come out. Yeah, he's, he's a phenomenal <clears throat> player for sure. Um, yeah, so, so, so he – I think he might have – contacted us within the past year but i you know he's always been on my radar because he the stuff he did with was etheridge is great i mean he's he's a great studio drummer the you know exactly what you want someone who's really into sound and making sure the gear is proper and making sure his patterns are really contributing but he started an instagram page and was putting up some really really cool things where he was just kind of like composing almost like video game sounding music and really? then setting up really strange kits and playing really unconventional parts on it, and it was That's like, awesome. all right, this is this is super cool. And he and he had said that he actually got hired to do some some composing based on some of that stuff. Really? Because it do sounds you, like it sounds like something you would hear on a commercial or a video game. Yeah, I mean, not to put you on the spot, but you don't happen to know his Instagram <clears throat> handle, do you? If no, not, we can just throw it in the show no, notes. I think it's it's probably just Blair Sinta. Um, okay, I'll find it before we're done. But yeah, it's a really good one. I think everyone should follow it because he's, you know, just like Aaron Sterling. I mean, everything he puts up is is cool and, and yeah. interesting. And Blair's a LA session cat. Looks like um, doing most of his stuff, or not most of his stuff, but he he definitely does tracks for hire. So you can send him stuff, and he'll play on it. Um, he also has um, a uh, a really cool sound lesson just showing like on his website. And his website, by the way, is blaircinta.com. But he's got a really cool lesson where he's just kind of showing you how much one snare drum can change right. recording-wise from just some tape and some different tuning. And it's pretty cool, man. Um, it's it's kind of awesome. But you can also sign up for lessons with him in L.A. Do you know what he's doing right now? Is it just all home recording stuff or is he out with somebody? Well, I don't know that uh, Josh Groban has kicked back in, but I would assume he's going to be back on the road with okay. him. That was, that was the recent thing he did. Um, you know, but he's always back working on sessions and stuff. His his handle is just Blair Sinta. B L A I R S I N T A. Blair Sinta. Awesome man. What uh, a yeah. what a cool uh, mix he's got. A, when I was going through his discography and and the projects he's been a part of, I was like, oh my gosh! Like he's definitely not the uh, one trick pony. He just seems to be able to play with anybody. So, yeah, he's got that chameleon really cool. uh, that 
that chameleon all around. He's he's got a jazz background. I think that I really think that gives the guys a hand up. Maybe I'm I'm biased because I went down that route, but I think if you have the jazz background, you can then go into the other stuff a little bit easier than the reverse. Being a rock drummer yeah. and then being trying to do a jazz session. Yeah, no, agreed. And and I think it just gives you generally if you have uh worked in a trio, quartet, quintet, or even a big band, you generally have a different ear for music and and complementing music because especially if you're in an impro- improvisational setting, the whole time that you're improvising, you're trying to complement the music, you're trying to complement the soloist. Um, so you know those guys generally have a pretty amazing ear for what to write. So right, right. awesome. Well, definitely check out Blair Sinta. You can go to his website, blairsinta.com. Like I said, you can watch his uh, <clears throat> snare drum lesson there. You can also, if you're going to be in the LA area, you can sign up for lessons with him, private lessons uh, through his website. Uh, and I believe he, he might even do Skype lessons. And then if you are a musician other than a drummer that happens to like this podcast, you can also contact him for session work to play on your project. He's also right. interviewed in the February issue of Modern Drummer, which is out That's currently. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we ain't going to cover you. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, so let's get into some gear reviews. So we're checking out some <clears throat> Peisty Signature Rides. Now, these are actual signature rides because they have a signature series, right? Yeah, it's it was kind of hard to describe that, what this quartet of symbols are because some of them are in the signature series, one of them's in the 2002, and one of them's in the Masters. But these are artist Artist signature ride. This is what we think of when we think of a signature ride symbol. Right, it's right. that person's approval saying, I want that to be my ride. Yep. So these came out last year. Um, we have the 20-inch Virtuosity Duo ride for Carl Palmer, which is in the signature series. <clears throat> that one's kind of interesting because they left the center portion raw and just heavily hammered and then laid the outer portion. Um, they, they, they say it gives you two distinct ride sounds. I could hear a difference where the outside was a little bit more washy and more than the raw side. It wasn't like two different symbols. It so it was wasn't just, like the Omni? Yeah. I mean, it it was just a degree of, of dryness. Uh, okay. It's a good-looking symbol. M- more extreme than what you would get from playing the edge versus the close to the bell with a normal ride. but And then the bell is lathed and looks like it almost somewhat brilliant. Maybe not fully brilliant but yeah i mean um, the the bell and this is definitely a loud pingy symbol uh the bell was really piercing um, it's definitely a symbol for someone who wants a lot of clarity uh, in volume and then along the same lines they had the danny carey signature which is a 22 inch dry heavy ride with the purple uh color sound finish and danny's logo on it that was also incredibly uh dry and articulate uh, and loud. These are those are two rock symbols. I would not use right. them for anything <clears throat> other than rock. And, and Danny's really is a twenty-two, them. right? Yeah, it's it's heavy. They're both very heavy symbols for you know if you play a lot of fast ride patterns and you're playing metal or hard rock or something, uh, you can't really crash them. They're not okay. really designed for That's that. Not what they're, sure, yeah, they're designed for loud bell and real clear uh, ride Stick. patterns. Yeah. And then on the opposite side, I checked out a 24-inch 2002 Swish, which was designed by John J.R. Robinson. 24-inch. I mean, it's a giant freaking Swish symbol. <clears throat> but it sounded it sounded beautiful. It had a bunch of rivets in it, I believe. How many rivets did it have? I don't remember. But did it not have rivets? It doesn't. It didn't have rivets. Never mind that. 
But it's got some really cool graphics on the top of it with uh, a little notation. You've got some eighth note triplet followed that's by a quarter a, note. That's the rock rock with yeah, me. Yeah, gump brudatin, flapadadadatin. Ah, that's awesome. Description of rock with me on it. But it was a great. So cool. It was a really great sounding symbol. It almost sounded like it had rivets in it. That's what made me think of it because it just had like a sizzly trashiness. It wasn't like a china trash. It was more of a just like a gritty trash ride. That's a big symbol, man. It's huge. I mean, that that's, goes back to the ergonomics. Where do I was going to say, that? where do you put that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, oh. I use 24s often, uh, but it does kind of, you have to compensate. Either you're going to make the bell too far away or you're going to bring it into your kit or you're going to have to angle it kind of. Now, in this, in this situation, would you actually use this <clears throat> in place of your ride? No, I would use it as an alternate ride. Because, I mean, if people don't know, I mean, and I'll be honest, I actually don't know. What's the difference between a Swish and a China? Is a Swish just a shallower China? Yeah, I mean, it's slightly different, but I think the biggest design difference in general is that, maybe not in the case with this one, but usually the bell is not inverted, so you can play, okay. it, you can play it the right way. Um, gotcha. But this one, um, I might even be wrong with that, but this, I think it has a less pronounced flange for sure. So it's it's right. like a trashy ride, but not quite a full-on China. It's designed as a ride symbol. That's the biggest I gotcha. thing. Okay, so so in this case, you're actually riding on it yeah. as a verb, where usually with a China, you don't ride on it, you use it as a crash. Yeah, uh, I mean, okay. you could crash it for a real sure. big, big, loud, pretty warm and, sound. And, and Swish symbols, though, they, I mean, they were... Back in the big band era, right? Exactly. That's that's what this is. It's kind of evoking that Mel Lewis um, yeah. swish sound. Okay. It's really awesome. it's gorgeous. I mean, if you play a lot of blues or something that needs that kind of smoky, gritty thing, it's a good alternative ride. I put it on the right below my main ride symbol and just kind of rode on it that way. Nice. But it's a big one. You need a you need a big bag to carry that. Thing <laughs> that's then, something people don't think about, man. Yeah, I mean it's. How are you going to get that to the gig? And it's also f- got a flanged edge, so it's not going to be like tight it's in take there. A, it's going to take some space. you got to call that symbol an Uber. It's like, all right, you're going on your own. I'll meet you at the gig, Swish. And then the last one was a really gorgeous 20-inch master's ride called the Mellow Bluebird Ride, designed okay. by French jazz drummer André uh, Ceccarelli, I believe that's how you say it. Uh, that was my favorite because it just kind of pleased my aesthetic of liking more warmer, mellower symbols uh sure you know really kind of jazzy but clean not not trashy but had a, a complexity that was really really gorgeous i think you already mentioned this but i think i remember seeing these did come out last year maybe yeah it was you last said, year. did you already say that okay yep. yeah yeah because i remember that when that ride came out i was like okay that's gorgeous that's, yeah. yeah that's that's a, that's nice it's kind of like a one of those rides where you could just use this one symbol you can crash yeah. it you can ride it agreed you know, given given certain volume constraints, it it wouldn't hold up to tools tool or anything like sure. that. But that's why they make the Danny Carey symbol. exactly. But I I really liked it. I think it'd be a I think it's going to show up in a lot of people's kits because it's 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 kind of you know it's straddling that line between a complex kind of trashy ride and a, and a clean articulate ride. It it kind of favors the cleaner side of of a jazz ride. Okay. And these are all professional level symbols. I mean, for the yeah. Peisty signature, you're looking around four hundred forty dollars for the sorry the signature series duo ride. Uh, for the Danny Carey symbol, you're looking at about five hundred twenty. Remember that is two inches bigger. So um, 
When you get to the 24, the reason it comes down to 465. This is for the Peisty 2002 series uh, Swiss ride, and it's coming down just because it's a, a more affordable alloy. And then for this one, probably looking for the 20 inch Peisty 20 inch Masters Bluebird Mellow Ride symbol, looking at about 440, 450 bucks. So these are all professional level symbols. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, these are high end, high end Pisces. I think in the playing examples, you're going to hear the Virtuosity first, then the Danny Carey, then the Swish, then the Mellow. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> yeah. If not, they're like, man, I thought that big Mellow would be a little less pingy. It's like, I oh, was the Danny Carey ride. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, well, let's give him a listen. Okay, our first question of this week is is uh, coming from Harrison. He's wondering what the differences, if any, there are there for different types of lugs uh, in regards to the drum sound. So, is there Ooh. is there a difference between a drum that has tube lugs versus a drum that has high tension lugs? Well, I think we we know that we know what the stereotype is that the tube lugs are going to let the shell resonate, yeah. and there's going to be all this tone. And then if you have big, massive lugs, they're going to kill the drum. I, I've never done any ABD, ABD? ABD. I've never done ABD testing, <laughs> but you probably have. Do you notice that the lugs actually affect the resonance at all? I can't say that I've ever tested a snare drum and said, man, those lugs sure are choking off the shell. I really can't. <laughs> uh, okay. But that's not to say there's not a difference if I would really do an AB. I mean, I, I, I have the Craviato Johnny C series, which has cast lugs that are you know is more contact with the shell that drum does seem to be maybe a little more controlled than it would have been with tube lugs but again it's it might just be speculation i haven't noticed a ton of difference i think the biggest difference is the durability of those lugs Uh, sometimes the ones that are cast onto the shell i mean they're made out of cheap pot metal or something and they're gonna you know they can break like the ludwig acrylite bow i don't know what they're called but they're like bow tie lugs 
Uh-huh. They're cheaper than the Imperial lugs that are on the Superphonics, and they're cheaper than the tube lugs that are on some of the Black Beauties. And they break. I've had them, I've had them snap in half over time. Right. So I think that's the really the biggest thing. It's just what are those lugs made of? A solid brass tube lug, you're not gonna you're not gonna damage that sucker. But right. a, a pot metal cast lug that brings the price of the drum down is not gonna last as long. Yeah. Uh, Mark and I experienced that with our uh, prototype snare. We we tried to bring the cost down. I mean, obviously for the consumer, but it was like, well, th- they broke on us, you know. Yeah, um, and, and yeah, this had will. nothing to do with anybody other than it's like, well, these that's what they do. That's why we just saved the user two hundred dollars, <laughs> right? And it's like, okay, well then they're going to have to pay more because they're going to be really mad at Mark and I if uh, <laughs> if this thing breaks on them. So yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I don't. I've never noticed a difference. I think the Pearl free floater snare drum would be the extreme of nothing touching the shell. Mm. And then a shallow drum with maybe DW lugs, high mass lugs, would be the extreme the other way. Um, and I've I've never really noticed a massive difference. Yeah. So. I mean, plus you get it. I mean, we don't really want endless tone coming out of a snare drum anyway. So, Dude, what's the biggest part of the drum market right now? Dampening. Yeah. So why does everybody want to have so much damn tone? All you're going to do is kill it. And as soon as you, I mean you engage the snares, that automatically chokes a certain amount of the resonance out. Right. So, yeah, I would maybe I should do a little bit of scientific testing, but I think it's more of a what do you like, and then realize that tube lugs are going to last longer if they're good quality tube lugs. Right. Cool. All right. Next question comes from Jensen. Uh, he's been playing drums for 13 years, and lately he's been looking into teaching lessons. Um, was wondering what he should prepare as far as curriculum. Should he have a set plan that will work with every student, like using the four-stage practice method, or should I use books? Um, that's that's the bulk of his question. He's also asking if he should start teaching at a local music shop or try to teach out of his house. Yes. So the curriculum is the big question. Should he have a set curriculum that he kind of plugs students into? Yes. And yes to should he teach out of books? And yes, should he teach at a store? <laughs> yes to all of it. Absolutely. Um, I would say this. The only set curriculum I have for my students is what I would call the first month's worth of lessons for a new drummer or maybe first 10 lessons for a new drummer. There's things that I explain to the drummer on their very first lesson to the student. I ask that first thing I do is I ask them questions about themselves. I want them to know that I'm trying to get invested in them as a player, as a person. So I'm asking them, how much time do you have to practice? Be honest with your life. I, I need to set my expectations as your teacher. Yeah. Ten minutes a day? Fine. I, I don't I don't care what it is. Just tell me what it is so I set my expectations. Then I'm asking about their favorite band. I want to know what kind of music they like. Are you into rock, you into jazz, funk, fusion? Uh, then I'm asking about favorite drummers. A lot of times new drummers don't have favorite drummers yet, but they might. Uh, so I'm start, starting to tailor a plan in my head. And then after all this information, I let them know, hey, by the way, there's some things I can't get you out of. There's things that apply to metal as much as they do to jazz. So we're going to learn our basic notation. We're going to learn our basic rudiments. We're going to learn how to keep time, how to keep track of time, how to count. And so so I would say like my first five to ten lessons are somewhat scripted. But even then, I'm still doing them with their favorite music in the background instead of a metronome. And then once I let, I let them know, once we get some of these basics out of the way, then we can start to really go down the path that, that's going to get you closer to your dreams. As far as teaching and – then, and then once that happens, yeah, it's all out of books. I mean mm-hmm. I, I don't need to rewrite a book to cover what's covered in future sounds. David did a pretty good job. By the way, we should mention looks like he's going to be okay. And, yeah. Uh, Speedy um, recovery. 
Yeah, very much so. But um, you know, I mean, there's there's just great books out there for a reason. I don't need to rewrite Syncopation. It's there, so I don't mind doing it um, using that. So I, I definitely use books. And then uh, as far as teaching at a store, that's up to you. I think that comes down to trust between you and the student. If you think about uh, father or mother dropping off their 11 year old son or daughter at your practice space where everything smells like weed. Mm. They had to use a key card to get in. Then the gate closed behind them, and it was a chain link fence. And then somebody <clears> got <throat> shot outside. They're probably not going to drop off their kid. But if they're at <laughs> Bob's Music in you know in Little Town, Iowa, then it's like, hey, I feel good. There's an establishment here. Uh, everything seems fine. So I think that comes down to who you're teaching. If you want to be building a teaching practice, doing it at a store is a great way to do it. If you want to just teach the the random people that are your age and don't you know don't really care about that stuff, then you can teach them at your house or wherever. I, I took lessons at Pete Magadini's house in his basement. Never even occurred to me once that I was at his house and not in a store. Mm, but that right. wouldn't have happened when I was seven. <clears throat> My mom wouldn't have dropped me off at some dude's basement. So yeah, um, yeah. so we went to the store. So I think it just depends on the student. So uh, back to the books thing. Mm-hmm. How do you guide a student through a book to where it's not like – learn page one and come back and play it for me next week. Yeah, I definitely don't do that. I mean, I I know every book that I own. I know all of the pages that are my go-to references. So I would say every, I would say only my advanced students are actually working through a book where I'm like, okay, this is going to be two years of your life. You're Mm going to know the art of Bob drawing by John Riley. And we are going to hit it page by page. Um, But generally I'm using my books as a reference guide for where we are in our lessons. And I think I don't really need to write out that lesson John Riley already did it for me, and he did mm-hmm. it really well. And I might expose that student to, hey, who wrote this book? Oh, his name is John Riley. He's done a ton of books. Or where did we, you get these play-alongs? Oh, they come in Jim Riley's um, Survival Guide book. They're amazing. You should check it out. So I, I definitely don't mind shedding light on the other educators if they've written material that's like, well, I don't need to rewrite it. They did a great job of it. So, mm. um, But it's pretty rare that I have I, – I definitely have never done the thing that my teacher did to me or my first teacher, which is <laughs> – my mom had to buy Realistic Rock by Carmine, and we did it page for page. Right. And I just watched the drummers in band with me just just go past me so fast. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, you're not on page three of Realistic Rock? <laughs> I'm now putting the snare drum in between the hi-hats. Like, um, well, yeah, that's, the, that's kind of the, the balancing act because there is definitely science behind being able to check off something and, and yes. that you know, you're, you're reinforcing the progress and then – right. But and then there's also the the science behind being less linear. So do you well, push, not a lot do you of these push someone who's linear to a yeah. nonlinear method, or do you or do you stick with the way? They well, are? each human is different, so I, it's always trial and error. Um, some people would love <laughs> give me a book and let me just do it page by page because that's right. how I work. It's like that's fine. The the one thing I will say is drum books generally are not written to be page to page. They are not instruction manuals for something. You know what I mean? Like a lot of times I'm skipping to page 43 is our first page that we work out of of this specific book. So it's really rare. I mean if you did page for page, Joel Rothman's basic drumming, you haven't gotten a drum set yet and it's been nine years. It's like you're still on (laughs) – you're now on marching snare drum and you still haven't played your first beat. So – um, and, and that's one of my favorite books of all time, but I don't use it as an instruction book from page one to page two. So can you think of a book that is written that you've played out of that's written like that, where you actually would use page one to page two to page three? Well, yeah, I think most of the the uh, basic 
drum reading books, like drum, okay. Alfred Drum Method Book One. You really can't play page twenty until you can play page one. But what I mean is, if you were teaching somebody drums from the beginning, how would it cover reading and then their first beat and then their first fill, then back yeah, to reading a little more? No, advanced? that would be that's that's kind of where it comes down to designing your curriculum. I think exactly. You you know, yeah, you can work. I don't know why of, I'm mad at you. Like I think exactly. using, you know, reading, and yeah. sometimes I teach it, sometimes I don't. But lately, I lean towards not teaching it because there's just not so much actual reading in in what these students are going to be doing. Sure. But if I'm at a school, if if a high school is hiring me to teach lessons, then it's almost ninety percent reading because that's yeah. the only thing that matters is that they read the music that's put in front of them. You know what's funny is I actually don't use the Groove Scribe with my beginner students, and it would be the biggest help to them. I, I only use the Groove Scribe when I'm when I know my students can read, um, mm. meaning that I won't give them the cheat sheet for it. I won't give them the audio. Um, so the only reason I teach my younger students to read is so that I can give them stuff to practice and know that they can read it. Yeah. Um, if I tell them what to do, hey, I want you to work on four bar phrasing in your eleven. It's like, eh. I, like you said, I need I need you to bring a piece of paper back to me that I check off and put stars on right, to show right. your parents. Um, so that's why I teach reading, but it's very basic. I mean, it's quarters, eighths, sixteenths, and then the broken rhythms and the syncopated rhythms that we can make out of those. It could be two or three years before I've taught anybody tuplets, you know, triplets. Uh, mm. I probably don't even teach quintuplets in general um, unless somebody yeah. came to me. So, yeah, so I, I'm with you with that, but I, I think – that we don't really have a book that teaches you how to play drum set, like, you know, drum set for dummies from page one. No. Um, so I think it comes down to you creating a curriculum out of that. But I, I would say the only thing that I differ from with a lot of drum teachers is that curriculum, once they've gotten to a basic level, is really determined by the student's needs and desires for drumming. And I'm always cognizant of, like, you may never – do you want a tour? Is that a dream of yours? And they're like, no. I, I'm paranoid at the stage. It's like, cool. Then we then that tells me what we're going to be working on. You know, what, mm. do you, what do you want to do with this, man? So as long as I know that, I'm good to go. All right. Want to do one more? <clears throat> yep. So we've got um, – actually, we can probably crank out a couple of these because these are pretty short. So this one okay. is – Coming from Richie, uh, he has a question about practicing rudiments. They find that when I practice rudiments, I tend to count in sixteenth notes by default. So that means paradiddles, sure. single stroke rolls, double strokes, and everything tend to be counted as sixteenth notes. Right. And then I gradually increase the speed in order to train his hands. However, when I look at the notation that is usually written out, I see they're often written as thirty-second notes. Uh, so his question is: Is there a danger to playing rudiments as just as 16th notes and how do you typically count 32nd notes uh, I don't count 32nd notes really I count 16th and just play two notes oh that's funny I, I do count 32nd notes and I count 16th notes twice so it's one and a one and a two and a two and a three and a three and a four and a four and a one <laughs> um, I couldn't do it I would I would well I don't do what I'm playing <laughs> I, I, I would say I do it to predetermine my subdivision so, but I don't. If I'm playing thirty second notes, I don't. I don't count at all. If anything, I'd count the pulse. One, two, three, mm. four. One, two. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not jamming. Going one in a one in two in a two in a three in a three in a four in a four in a one. Um, but if I had to count the subdivision to get myself predetermined, honestly, I think you and I probably end up at the same place. And I'm not sure about this, but I, I usually just sing the subdivision. Yeah. You know, I'm not counting necessarily. I don't know um, that. I, I mean, when I was taught 30 second notes, I don't know that 
we, I think we just counted either eighth notes or sixteenth notes or quarter notes. I don't think we ever learned a syllable for sure. thirty second notes. Now we, let me ask: Can we, as far as this was Richie, right? Yep. So I have a question for you. When you first learned any of your rudiments, this is kind of going to Richie's question. When you first learned your rudiments that weren't in mm-hmm. groups of four, so paradiddle diddle, double mm-hmm. paradiddle, six rook roll, did you count them as sixteenth notes going over the beat line, or did you switch your counting and your feeling to triplets? So when you first learned double paradiddles, did you feel them as one e and a two e and a three e and a one e and a two e and a three or one and a one and a two and a two and a three and a three and a four and a four and a you know, I, I don't recall, but I would think probably my tendency would just to be just change the subdivision so it falls on a quarter note, uh, right? And I, I someone never told me that. Really? So all of my groups of six always went over the beat line. I could play them as sixteenth notes or as thirty second notes. It wasn't even brought to my attention that that they would fit perfectly and flawlessly. <laughs> I'm talking when I was a kid, but still, no one even mentioned. It. I was like, oh, what's that cool thing you did in jazz bands? Like uh, paradiddle diddles, they just kind of fit. And I'm like. Mine don't. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, yeah, they totally do. But but I had to feel them way differently. You know? <clears throat> yeah, um, I don't know how they're notated on the, the PAS rudiment chart. They're, they're notated in, in triplets. They are? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I, don't, I, mean, I think his question is, is there a danger to playing rudiments as 16th notes? I think there's a danger of thinking of rudiments as having any kind of a set pattern or yes. subdivision. I think of them more as a sticking <clears throat> pattern, not as a subdivision. Yeah, devoid the subdivision of any is kind irrelevant. Of exactly. Absolutely. You just paradiddles could be I think anything. They could be the one notes, danger I do find notes. though is when people are playing thirty second notes, but can't play them without accenting them as sixteenth. So they play one and a two and a three and a four. So they're they're playing every fourth note as their accent. Mm. And when I when I have students, if we're in a in a thirty second note thing. I want them to feel it as every eight notes. I don't want them to feel as like I don't want it just sixteenths in double time where they're accenting every four notes. Right, right. So I really want them to feel that slower. Every eight, every eighth note is the pulse. But when it comes to rudiments, I think we agree. I see them as sticking patterns and nothing else. I think you could use Joe Morello's. This is definitely not an original idea for me. I think Ralph Peterson might be the first person I saw do it, but use Joe Morello's uh, pyramid, which is not even his thing, but it's in master's, right, sure. master's studies. But it's basically, okay. you just start with, I think he uses quarters, and he just he just makes the subdivision smaller each time. So yes. quarter notes, quarter note triplets, eighth notes, eighth note triplets. That in general notes. just opens your mind to, wait a minute, so I could play paradiddles as? It's like, yeah? Yeah, so and play yeah. all of your rudiments through that pyramid and learn mm-hmm. how they land and how to resolve them. Uh, yeah, that would, that would get rid of you being locked into sixteenth notes. I would, I would. There we go. I would think. Okay, so a couple more short ones. Uh, have you guys ever used? This is coming from Raphael. Okay, um, he's he's talking about using hand speed and he's using those power wrist builders metal sticks, uh-huh. which are super heavy. Um, he's so he's saying after ten minutes. With using those on the pad, he feels like his sticks feel like feathers when he uses regular ones. So he just wanted to know if, if we have any thoughts on that. I've used them. I think they they work in in short bursts of time, and you know, no more than five minutes at a time. Yeah, they don't seem to make me any faster. They seem to make <clears throat> me stronger, which is what they would do, which would make your sticks feel lighter. Right. Which personally is the opposite of where I want to go. I actually usually warm up with seven A's because I like my sticks to feel kind of fat in my hands. So. Really? I go the opposite. Yeah, because I'm not going for speed. I mean, 
I'm, I'm not a speed drummer, but for the, I, I do know uh, there's a minor artist named Larry Belton Jr. that uh, is just a monster, monster. He's out of Sacramento. We've been friends since we were kids, and he um, he he swears by those things, man. And yeah. he's a fast, fast man. So <laughs> so I think it comes down to what you want, and really you have to a b test yourself. Did it work for you? If it did, cool. Yeah. But you know, uh, Dennis played on pillows, and yep, Buddy Rich. Crushed walnuts with his hands. So yeah, and I've had I had teachers who said don't ever use a practice pad. Yeah, but I'm like I can't work on a single stroke roll on my snare drum. Like come right. on now. Yeah, yeah. But it's far. But last comment about the power of wrist builders. I've I've had them, and I you know different phases when I was in the drum corps phase. Everyone had them, and it was kind of a you know rite of passage to be able to play your your hybrid rudiments with these things. But the thing that I remember taking out of it was they're made of metal, so if you squeeze them tight it's going to shock the crap out of your hands so i yeah. learned the proper amount of tension by letting because you can hear the sticks you know reverberate really well yeah, they choke yeah, yeah they choke if you if you if you hit them or so squeeze them too tight so i found like i was able to really kind of fine-tune my touch with the sticks by getting the maximum resonance out of the sticks on a pad so that was that was kind of cool but cool when really chopping out on them got you know i would not do that right <laughs> tendonitis is it's kind of in your future yeah <laughs> All right. Yeah, we're probably out of time. We have a few more old ones, and then next week we'll get to a bunch of new ones. Good stuff, guys. the last please. one I have for today would probably take us 15 minutes. <laughs> please keep sending your questions to mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. We will get to them as soon as we can. We do get to all of them. It just uh, we have, We'll probably have a... Uh, all questions episode coming up in our future yep. to to knock out some more. So, all right, well, let's get into our picks of the week. This is a chance for Mike and I to alert you to a product, a video, an album, something that is important to us or that we are into at the moment. And your pick of the week, sir, is <laughs> I've got to find it. Hang on, all right. it's in my bag. Actually, no, it's I know it's a book. It's called uh, this. This was actually this book arrived in my hands right at the time I was diving down the rabbit hole of time and tempo and control and all that. <clears throat> so it's one of those things where if, you know, when, I don't know, what, what's the word, synchronicity, where as soon as you, you have a focus in your mind, all of a sudden all the stuff appears in front of you that kind yeah. of fulfills that. Uh, yeah. This book is it. It's called Rhythm. What is it and how to improve your sense of it by Andrew C. Lewis. It's a paperback that came out in 2005. Uh, I'm assuming it's still available. It's on Amazon. It's not a cheap book. It's about $30. It's 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 more of a collegiate kind of a text course book. But it dives deep into everything about analyzing what actually is rhythm and how rhythm and frequency are, are intrinsically related. Frequency is just a really, really fast rhythm. Or the opposite of rhythm is just a really, really slow frequency. Gotcha. Uh, which that kind of blew my mind and changed everything. Now thinking that my drum beats are actually related to the the frequencies that the bass player is playing by, you know, it, it kind of just freaked me out. <laughs> but there's also really good practical exercises on how to develop your ear to hear timing more accurately using claves and clapping and counting patterns and all this stuff. So it goes deep. I usually pick it up once so a this month. is not a notation book. This is like an actual... Book. It's got it's got a mix of some notation, but it's more like a dissertation on rhythm. Right. That so goes I, in not every a practicing. Area. I'm going to have this on my music stand and my no, but there are kit. like practice exercises in each okay. chapter. Cool. So you know you'll go through a whole whole discussion on what is 
pulse, and then there'll be some clapping exercises. It's not a drum book. It's for anyone. Sure, sure. Um, and these are these these are kind of things you can do in the car. You can do you know on your lunch break. You can do any time of day. You don't need to have drumsticks. A lot of it's just clapping with a metronome. Awesome. Uh, it's really really great. And I like I said, I, I open it up once a month, and I usually stop after I read one page. I'm like, there's something I missed last time. Like, there's a whole new world. Like, I didn't know Pythagoras was interested in rhythm, and there's all kinds of really that's awesome. Super nerdy. I mean, it's about as nerdy as you can get. <laughs> sure, <laughs> but and it's and the book itself is just called Rhythm. Rhythm and subtitle: What is it, and how to improve your sense of it. Got it. And you'll put maybe a link. Yep. Awesome. Um, okay, well, my pick of the week is – sorry, I just typed that into Google and they brought up a diamond necklace. Okay, well done, Google. Uh, <laughs> what are you shopping for? <laughs> dude, I don't know. Rhythm. I got to rhythm. What is it? Pressed entered, enter, and then all of a sudden it was like you can get this diamond necklace for $259. It's like, uh, okay. All right, so uh, my pick of the week this time is something that almost every one of you guys already currently has, so it's just taking advantage of it. And that would be Instagram Live. It couldn't be easier to live stream these days. This is something I've been doing for a decade now with my website. And I constantly live stream my practices on my website at about 11 p.m. or midnight when hopefully everyone's asleep. But the thought that a few people could be waking up in Europe and logging into Mike'sLessons.com and they will happen to see me keeps me very diligent about my practice it it keeps me from screwing around too much because i'm thinking okay they're about to see their teacher practice Mm -hmm. i want to display great practice habits which actually makes me practice with great practice habits um (laughs) accountability accountability and so i you guys can now do that with instagram live and just set up your camera uh this is not another plug for this, but if, if, you, if you've ever streamed live with your camera and you play drums, you know it's not the best sound. So I plug in that Audio-Technica 2020 USB-I into my phone. I stream live from my phone, and I practice for about 20 minutes, and people get to see you. And the, and the way you practice is very different when you think somebody's watching you practice. So that's why it's my pick of the week. I think okay. having that accountability would be great. A question about that. Yeah. I know like with Facebook Live, you can see when people log in, and mm-hmm. it, that is Seems to be. I'm hesitant to do that because that seems like such a distraction of like my my cam- logging in or my phone is about 15 feet away from me. So, but is Instagram the same way where you see Instagram's the same? Yeah, so see how many people are there and who's commented. Like it kind of yeah. happens all. And- so I don't see it until my practice is done, and then I walk over to where my phone and that's why that microphone is so cool. I can get the microphone pretty close to my kit. Yeah, and then I can. I'm the phone is nowhere <clears throat> near me. If I could see that screen, how would I ever practice? That's what I mean. Yeah, it's just like yeah. Another distraction. No, it's 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 nowhere near me. It's pretty far away. Um, Does it document I, it? Does it save it? It you get a report when you're when you're done. It says okay, this many people watched you. You got this many likes. Uh, what it doesn't save is the comments and stuff. So I feel like it'll be kind of egotistical if I'm done practicing. I walk over to my phone and then I'm still streaming live while they see me scroll through. You know, the phone's just pointing at the ground where I'm like, oh, he liked me. Oh, that's very nice of her to say that. So I've, I've never seen any of the comments. But yeah, as soon as I press stopping stream, it says you had, you know, 1,500 people view this and you had this many likes. Interesting. Um, and then it's gone forever. It doesn't, it's not like Facebook Live. It, no one can ever see it unless they watched it live. Uh, okay. So it's just a way to build some accountability into your practice. And I, I, I think it'd be good for everybody. 
Awesome. Get over that hump. So, all right, everybody. Once again, if you want to keep sending us questions, mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. If you can, go to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and just give us a review. The favorable reviews are really helpful for getting other drummers to know that this podcast exists. And like Mike said earlier, we read all of those reviews, and they do mean a lot to us. Um, it's awesome when people mention a little line from the podcast that was probably 30 minutes deep. So I'm like, wow, you really do listen. That's yeah, awesome, yeah. man. Yeah, it's really cool. So everyone have an amazing week. Mr. Dawson, I am currently seeing you at NAMM right now while they're listening to this. Actually, while they're listening to this, this is the day that I'm going to NAMM. So I'll see you on Friday, which is today, which is not today. (laughs) Uh, Have a good week, buddy. All right, see you.